Can you guys hear me okay? Nope. <laughs> yeah? In the back, my people? Okay. All right. Uh, well, good morning. Let's try that again. Good morning. All right. Thank you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to the book of Genesis. Uh, this morning, we'll be looking at chapters 46 and 47. Um, and I know I just asked you to turn there, but I'm going to ask you to actually close your eyes and pray with me to start our service. And then you can resume your searching. Uh, Lord, we, we pause right now um, just to acknowledge, God, that we are about to enter a space that is holy. Lord, and we are, are very much unlike you. Lord, your word says in Psalm 90 that you have been our dwelling place in all generations, and that rings true even today. And it says, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the worlds, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So I ask, Lord, in this time, Lord, for the next 20, 30, 40 minutes, that you would help us to scale ourselves down to size. Lord, will we feel how small and fragile and frail that we are, and how great and majestic and glorious you are. Lord, that we are but a vapor, a breath, dew that is here in the morning and is gone the same morning. But Lord, your word speaks throughout all generations. Lord, it accomplishes all it sets out to do, and it does not return void. And so I pray, Lord, in this time, Lord, that uh, we would walk away not remembering my words, but remembering yours. Lord, for they speak a better word, one that brings salvation, brings healing, and Lord, brings life to the full. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So if you remember back to last week's text, um, Tyler taught from chapters 44 and 45 of Genesis as we continue to make our way through the verse book of the Bible. And in that text, we saw Joseph reveal his identity to his brothers. We saw him then forgive his brothers. And ultimately, he sent his brothers back to the land of Canaan to fetch his dad and the rest of his family. And so his brothers go back to Canaan with a small fortune of food, clothing, and livestock. Is that me? I like backing. Okay. <laughs> um, so, th- so they go back to, to Canaan to, to fetch their dad and their family with this kind of small fortune of food, clothing, and livestock. And it's there that they reveal to their dad, Jacob, that Joseph, the son that he thought has been dead for decades, is actually not only alive, but he is ruling all of Egypt. He's calling the shots, if you will. And then in dramatic fashion, chapter 45 fades to black, with Jacob saying that he is going back to Egypt to see the son that he thought was dead before he himself dies in his old age, which brings us to the threshold of chapter 46. So um, there's a lot going on in these two chapters, more than we can exhaust or exegete in the span of 30 to 40 minutes. And just for fun, Moses threw in a genealogy in the middle of chapter 46, so there's that. Uh, But what I want us to see this morning from our text is that everything that takes place in these two chapters is bookended and is framed by two pillars of God's providence. So at the beginning of chapter 46, we see that God once again will renew his covenant to his people, this time to the patriarch Jacob or Israel. And then at the end of chapter 47, we see God fulfill his promise, at least in part, through the wisdom and rule of Jacob's son, Joseph. And in the middle of these two bookends, we see the passing of both time and space and circumstances that all serve to show us that while everything else changes, God remains the same. 
So far in our study of Genesis, we have seen creation go sideways. We've seen eating a piece of fruit quickly escalate into the murder of a brother. We have seen God press the reset button on the human project as as a whole. We have seen patriarchs stumble in sin. We've seen, uh, seen the hero turned into the fool. And we've seen man try to bring about the promises of God in his will and in his way. And all the while, God has continued to pursue his people and to keep his covenant promises. And so here in chapter 46, God shows us once again that nothing can change those true truths, not even a famine in the land. God will have his people, he will keep his covenant, and he will get the glory. And what I want us to see this morning is that the reason that Jacob and Joseph can have the resolve and the confidence that they do in these two chapters is because they are hedging all of their bets on the reality that the God of the Bible is exactly who he claims to be. That's the key this morning. As we get into these two chapters, and we will in a a second, but the foundation of this text and the foundation of this sermon is built on the reality that God is exactly who he claims to be. And the reason that we don't take the steps of faith we see in the scriptures, myself included here, is because our vision of God isn't as big as theirs was. And it surely isn't as big as God himself is. We see a shadow, but we have yet to grasp the substance. So, we see God's nature and character on display, and by that, I just mean all of who God is. We see his goodness, his grace, his glory, his majesty, his sovereignty, and his might. We see all of that and man's subsequent uh, response in three places in our text this morning. So first, we see it in Jacob's response. Second, we see it in Pharaoh's blessing. And as we'll see in the text, uh, this isn't really about Pharaoh's response to God or obedience or repentance on behalf of Pharaoh, but it is about God keeping his covenant and in that keeping with his nature and his character. And lastly, we see this in Joseph's confidence. So if you're taking notes this morning and you want three points because that's what we do here at CTK, it's Jacob's response, Pharaoh's blessing, and Joseph's confidence. So first, um, let's look at Jacob's response. Look with me, starting in chapter 46 at verse 1. It says this, So Israel took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba. And he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation, I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. So Jacob has just been convinced that Joseph is still alive, and he sets off for Egypt. And the Bible says he goes with all that he has. And as Jacob nears Egypt, he pauses here at Beersheba, it says, to offer sacrifices to God. Now, Beersheba in that day was a place of double significance for Jacob. So, uh, for starters, it was the place that earlier in the Genesis narrative, both his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac, Isaac excuse me, dug wells to the Lord. Abraham's well was dug in Genesis 21. You can look at it at a later time. And he swore there an oath with uh, the king, the pagan king Abimelech. Isaac's well was dug a few chapters later in Genesis 26, and afterwards he worshiped God as God promised to be with him and to make him into a great nation, a promise that God echoes to Jacob here. But not only does Beersheba hold a personal significance for Jacob, it holds a geographic one as well. Beersheba is the southernmost city of Canaan at this point, which is the promised land, and the people of God don't exactly have the best track record south of the border in Egypt. 
And so Egypt is where Abraham, if you remember, lied to a former pharaoh about his relationship with Sarah, his wife, calling her his sister, not his wife, so that he could spare his life. And it's where God told Isaac specifically not to go in a former famine in Genesis 26. And so Egypt, for Jacob here, probably felt very much out of bounds. And so you might imagine that Jacob here must have felt like he was in this no-win situation between a rock and a hard place, right? On the one hand, you desperately want to see your son Joseph, and uh, if that wasn't enough motivation, you were literally starving to death in the land of Canaan. But on the other hand, the God that you worship, the covenant-keeping God of both your father and your grandfathers, is the God of Canaan. He's not the God of Egypt. Egypt has their own God, and his name, at least one of them, is Pharaoh. And after all, you live in the promised land, which might appear to mean that if you forsake the promised land, then you forsake the promise. And so Jacob probably feels a real, a real tension here in this space as he worships in Beersheba, which makes what God says to him all the more gracious. So God comes to Jacob in this dream. He calls him by name. And we have to remember this isn't the first time that God spoke to Jacob in a dream. If you remember back uh, several chapters earlier in Genesis 28, God would visit Jacob in a similar way under similar circumstances. So at that time and in this one, God was calling Jacob to leave something that was familiar to him, something he knew, his homeland, and he was calling him to go to a place that was foreign and a place that was unknown. God also tells him here in chapter 46, as he did in chapter 28, that God will go with him and even more, that he will bring him back. And God made good on that promise, which makes this all the more believable. But as comforting as that dream must have been, God does more than that in these few verses. God is actually changing the landscape on which he's going to keep his covenant, and he's assuring Jacob that he will once again see his long-lost son, Joseph. So this statement here from God to Jacob in this dream that he's going to make him into a great nation, isn't a throwaway phrase, right? If you remember, that is covenant language. It's Genesis 12 language, and it's God communicating to Jacob that God doesn't have to stay in the promised land to keep the promises he's made to his people. So when God says to Jacob in verse 4, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation, what God is saying isn't, is that Egypt isn't a detour or a contingency plan because things have gone awry. God is saying that Egypt is actually plan A. As one commentator put it, Egypt is the incubator. It is the womb in which God is going to curate something small and insignificant into something great and glorious. And then God ends this dream by telling Jacob that Joseph's hand shall close his eyes. Now, that's language we don't really use anymore, and that may sound kind of weird to you, but this would have been a great comfort to Jacob in his old age. He's 130 at this point, and what God is talking about here is the way in which Jacob will die. God is saying that when Jacob closes his eyes for the very last time, that Joseph will be with him, which means he will see his son again, and he'll get the opportunity that he never had before to hold his son, to tell him he loves him, and to say goodbye knowing that he'll never see him again on this side of eternity. This is God bringing closure to a very old wound for Jacob. And after hearing, hearing all of this, excuse me, Jacob has no doubts. The fear that Jacob would have felt was, has been assuaged by God's visitation and God's dream, and we see that in Jacob's response. We'll keep going. Look with me at verses 5 through 7. It says this, Then Jacob set out for Beersheba, 
The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took the livestock and their goods, which had they gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters. All his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. So the word there in verse 5 in the Hebrew uh, for when it says then, like then Jacob went out from Beersheba, is the word kum. Can you say that? Kum? Like kumbaya, <laughs> uh, which means to rise, to arise, or to stand up, which means as soon as Jacob woke up, he sets out for Egypt, right? This is, uh, this is a burn the boats moment for Jacob. And this is not the Jacob we saw from Genesis 28. If you remember back in Genesis 28, Jacob responded to God's covenant promise with a conditional obedience. Now, this Jacob is much different. He is mature. He is trusting. He's humble. He actually looks a lot more like his grandfather Abraham from Genesis chapter 12, where God told Abraham to leave everything he knew and set off for a place he didn't. And Abraham did. He obeyed God uh, because he believed in the God that was speaking to him. And that's the response we see from Jacob here. Jacob is going all in on Egypt because God has gone all in on Jacob, and he has promised to be with him. And so I think for us, a good question this morning would simply be this, is God calling us to leave something that is familiar and known in exchange for something that is unfamiliar and unknown? And there's going to be fear there, naturally. That's a human response. That's an emotional response. But perhaps that means leaving an elementary school cafeteria and search for a private school auditorium. That was a joke, Kevin. <laughs> um, but but I don't want to go too far here and say, is God calling you to be a venture capitalist or a YouTube influencer? Okay, don't hear me saying that. But maybe God is calling you to speak to the stranger, as we just practiced in our passing of the peace, instead of settling for the same familiar faces. Perhaps God is calling you to change the way you spend your money or the way you spend your time. Or maybe it's a change in career or a calling that you have been putting off that would serve the body and glorify God, and you've kind of rationalized your way out of it for some time now. But at the end of the day, you can't shake it, and the Spirit keeps bringing it to the surface of your heart and your mind. But whatever it is, the question remains the same. If God has spoken to us through His Word, through prayer, or through the body, do we trust Him enough to obey Him? Will we burn our own boats because the truth, uh, because we trust the God who is guiding us? So that's Jacob's response. Let's look next at Pharaoh's blessing. Look with me, starting in chapter 46, verse 31, and we'll read down through chapter 47, verse 7. At this point, Joseph and Jacob have just been reunited, and Jacob once again says, I'm ready to die. That's a refrain he likes to use. <laughs> Always ready to die, <laughs> which is probably a good state to be in. But we'll pick it up in verse 31. I digress. It says this, Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls to you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers, with their flocks and herds and all that they possess, have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, uh, as our fathers were. 
They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among you, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought, brought in Jacob his father, and he stood him before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh blessed, uh, Jacob blessed Pharaoh. goes on to say in verse 10, once again, that Jacob will bless Pharaoh at the end of this exchange between these two men. But the blessing I'm referring to in the title of this point isn't so much focused on uh, Jacob's blessing of Pharaoh. It's primarily focused on God's blessing of Pharaoh, which shows us once again God's nature and his character. So if you remember back to Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God made this initial covenant with Abraham. He said to Abraham, you won't have to flip there, I'll just read it for us. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and will bless you and will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And then listen to this. God says, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so what we see here in our text this morning and throughout Joseph's tenure in Egypt is God keeping this promise towards Pharaoh from Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. God will keep this promise later to another Pharaoh in the negative sense. But here we see that because of Pharaoh's treatment of God's people, God returns in kind with his treatment of Pharaoh. Now you might say, well, there's a seven-year famine in Egypt right now, and we're only two years in. And if you keep reading, you see that things get much worse for the Egyptians. They sell their livestock to Joseph in exchange for food. Then they sell their land in exchange for food. And eventually they will sell their bodies and become slaves as a means, as a means to eat and just make ends meet. But I would ask you, and which to all of that you may say, that doesn't feel like blessing, right? But I would ask you to look at the mercy of God to warn Pharaoh through Joseph's interpretation of his dream. Because the truth is, and we can speculate a little bit, but hypothetically, without Joseph's dream and his wisdom and his warning and his governing of the Egyptians at this point, Egypt doesn't exist at the end of this famine. There's no Egypt on the map for us today. And isn't that God blessing those who bless his people? Then we see Pharaoh once again bless Joseph in his treatment of Joseph's family. In fact, I think one of the reasons Moses let us in on this little fact that's kind of odd at the end of chapter 46, where it says that every shepherd is an abomination or is disgusting, basically, to the Egyptians, is to highlight Pharaoh's mercy and his favor towards a people that his people despised, a people that his people held in contempt. And Pharaoh goes on to give them the best of the land and even elevate some of Joseph's brothers to some degree of the status that Joseph himself holds in Egypt. He says, if you know any able men among your people, put them in charge of my livestock. And then at the end of our reading in chapter 47, verse 7, and once again in verse 10, we see a humility from Pharaoh as Pharaoh accepts Jacob's blessing. Now, Pharaoh himself was thought to be a god in Egypt. He was uh, some delineation of the sun god, uh, Rama, I believe. I'm kind of speaking of who? Tell him. Ra. Ra. Excuse me. I was adding too much. That's, it's really Rama. They abbreviated it, you know, to make it cooler. Ra. Um, it does sound cool. But anyway, but we see him accept this blessing from, from Jacob, this foreign patriarch who would have believed in a foreign god, at least from Pharaoh's point of view. 
And so we see a humility there. And so God continues to bless Pharaoh and, and to lead them and guide them through this famine and out the other side, because that is who God is. He is a God who is slow to anger, who's abounding in steadfast love, not wanting anyone to perish, but that all would reach repentance. All right. So lastly, let's look at God's character, and this time we'll see it in the, the form um, or the shape of Joseph's confidence. All right, so we're actually going to look at the same verses for the third point as we did for the second point, but I'm going to read them again because we have a different emphasis. So look with me once again. This is 46.31 through 47.6. It says this, Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brother and my father's household, who are in the land of Canaan, have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers, with their flocks and herds and all that they possess, have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants and shepherds, um, excuse me, did I miss something there? Your servants are shepherds as our father was, excuse me. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land for there is no pasture for your servants' um, flocks for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your fathers and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. So what I want us to see here is the confidence Joseph has that he will get what he wants from Pharaoh. He will get what he's asking for. He basically guarantees it to his brothers. And you may be saying, well, doesn't that show us more about the character of Pharaoh than it does about the character of God. And I would say it does to a degree, and we saw that in our last point, but I think this primarily shows us Jacob's, Joseph's confidence in God's character because of what Joseph says back from last week's text in chapter 45, verses 4 through 11. So flip back one page in your Bible, or just maybe look to the left of your Bible, and look with me there at chapter 45, verses 4 through 11. It says this, So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in these land two years, and there are yet five years in which there shall be neither plowing nor harvest. Now I want to pause for just a second because I think we tend to read over that and not really think twice about it. But Joseph just claimed to know the future. Right? He just told his brothers what the next five years are going to look like, and he didn't bat an eye, which is probably why we gloss over it so easily. The weatherman can't get the weather right in the CSRA this afternoon half the time, and he's got Doppler radar. But Joseph said, I know what the next five years hold. And he doesn't say allegedly. He doesn't say, I think, or I suspect, or... God has told me, like he's putting the responsibility somewhere else. He just says, this is what's going to happen 
fact. And Joseph believes this. His assurance on the next five years are based on a dream and not even one that he had. Right? He is basing all of this on a dream that Joseph believes God gave to Pharaoh, who himself, again, is a pagan king who claims to be a god. And Joseph believes that God gave Pharaoh this dream so that Joseph, who at the time that Pharaoh dreamed it, was sitting in a prison, rotting away, and had been for two solid years. And now it's been nine to ten years later, and Joseph is ruling all of Egypt. All because of God's providence and his sovereignty and his might and his majesty and his glory and because God gave Pharaoh a dream. There's this domino effect and Joseph sees something way bigger than what's going on in the here and the now. Now if that doesn't testify to Joseph's confidence in the sovereignty and the character of the God of the Bible, I don't know what does. But we'll keep reading. Pick it up in verse 7. Listen to the language Joseph uses to speak to his brothers here. He says, And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He, again, that's God, has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house. So I will say there, I saw father to Pharaoh and lord, and I thought, that's kind of weird. Let me check the Greek there. It literally means I'm his dad and I'm over everything. (laughs) Joseph's like, I'm the boss in Egypt. This guy's like a figurehead. He's like the queen nowadays, right? Of the king, long live whose soul it is. Um, but anyway, that, I mean, Joseph's literally like, I'm the guy. I, I'm it. I'm, I'm where the buck stops in Egypt. He says, hurry and go to my father and say to him, thus says your son, Joseph, God has made me the Lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me and do not tarry. And then he tells his brothers what he repeats in our text a little bit later. He says, you shall dwell in the land of Goshen. Just that's how it's going to be. And you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. So if we take Joseph's confidence from, verse, uh, from chapter 46 and we pair it with this perspective he has in chapter 45, I think we see the root of Joseph's confidence. And the root of his confidence is this. The root of Joseph's confidence is that Joseph knows that what he's asking for doesn't depend on Pharaoh's permission, but depends on God's providence. I think that is the takeaway this morning for us. It is this perspective that Joseph has. It's this perspective primarily and mainly on God. And then from that perspective, he sees the rest of his life in tow. Joseph sees a God who is so much bigger than the land of Egypt. He is so much bigger than the false god Pharaoh, and he is so much bigger than a famine in the land. He knows that the God of the Bible isn't a God who is responding in real time under real circumstances as we are just trying to make sense of the world. Joseph knows that this God stands outside of time. He is over time. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He creates time, and at the same time, he crawls into time to dwell in it with you and with me. He knows that this God is conducting this sovereign symphony to speak of both his goodness and his glory. This is the vision of God that keeps Joseph both confident and humble, which means that for Joseph and perhaps for us this morning, if we can learn from him, life isn't something to be won or improved. It is not, as our culture defines it, about the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. No, life becomes about accepting our role in God's greater work and playing our part, 
however big or however small, and just playing that part really, really well. It becomes about stewarding our lives rather than controlling them, about accepting God's will rather than enforcing our own. And it becomes about welcoming both the palace and the prison because we know that God is using both of them as a means of our salvation and our sanctification. I said in the beginning that these two chapters, 46 and 47, are framed and bookended by two pillars of God's providence. The first we saw was the renewal of God's covenant to Jacob as he relocates his workplace. The second we see at the very end of chapter 47. Now, I know I haven't gotten into chapter 47 a whole lot, but I'm going to give you a quick rundown of the rest of the chapter. So chapter 47 is this seesaw of sorts. It sees the Egyptians reduced to slave labor just to get by, while the Israelites ironically thrive in the land of Goshen. And while most of 47, uh, chapter 47 chronicles the Egyptians' hardships, hardships and Joseph's wise governing over them, the last several verses tell of God's work in and through his people. It says this in chapter 47, verse 27. You can look there if you like. It says, Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it, and they were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Now that is a phrase we have heard before, to be fruitful and multiply. That's the creation mandate from Genesis 1. It is the recreation mandate from Genesis 9. And here in Genesis 47, it is the fulfillment of that mandate that God has now transposed into a covenant, which is to say that it is not on your shoulders that you are fruitful and multiply. Now it is on mine. And God did it against all odds. He does it in a foreign land, under foreign rule, in the midst of a seven-year famine which gets at the basis of the vision that Joseph has for God. And it's the vision of God that we should have as well, church. I want to end with this. If you go to our church's website and you scroll to the About page, you will find this quote by uh, F.H. No, F.H. Henry, Carl F.H. Henry, excuse me, he's got a lot of names, at the top. It says this, and this is about the church. It says, Founded by the true and living Lord and armed with the truthfulness of Scripture, the church of God is invincible. Now, I believe that is true. I know many of you, most of you in the room will believe that's true as well, and I hope you do. But the only way that is true, church, is if we believe that the God we claim to know is as big as the one portrayed in the very scriptures that this guy says we are armed with. And so this morning, me included, I want us to believe, just to take God out of the boxes that we have put him in, and to believe that the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and even Joseph is the same God we worship and commune with even now. Let's pray. Father, part of the fall is that we love control. God, we love to say what is good and what is evil, what makes us happy and what is for our suffering. God, and part of that is that we try and control you. Lord, I ask this morning that you would take us as a people and you would just let us imagine with you what you want to do in and through us. God, and it doesn't mean building some mega church or having a platform or a social media presence. God, but to see real, true, authentic change brought about by the gospel that goes deep into the souls of my brothers and sisters. Would you do a work in us this morning and going forward? Lord, we know you are faithful to keep your covenant. We ask this in confidence. This is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.